This morning we're talking about spiritual refugees. And uh, spiritual refugees, I guess, are a little different to political refugees. These are people who are spiritually displaced, people without a spiritual home, without a spiritual anchorage, people who maybe, and maybe you know people like this, maybe you are one this morning, and you once were walking with God, and then at some point in time, or maybe over a long period of time, you began walking away from God, and now you find yourself without any sort of spiritual identity outside of what was God's love and grace and, and all of those things. And this is a very real issue. It's not just theology. It's not just intellectual stuff. And I, I really have a heart this morning to try and avoid that trap of just preaching some theoretical sermon about a, about a technical theological issue because it's, it's a real one. Christians who throw in the towel and, and walk away from their identity and from their faith. It's a real issue in the church today. It was a real issue in the first century. It was a real issue in the book of Hebrews. It's an issue that the writer of Hebrews confronts head on in chapter 6 in this passage that we're up to today. And you may have seen from the bulletin, we're only dealing today with three little verses because there are so many questions that are raised by this issue. Where are these people now that have walked far from God? What is their spiritual status? Are they still in or are they out? Can they get back in? If they've fallen away, what does that even mean? How do we treat these people? How do we respond to them? And you, you need to understand that for the writer of Hebrews, this was a practical issue happening in the church, that some of the people he was writing to, and as these Jews read this letter for themselves, names would have come to mind, family members, friends that they would have dealt with and had, and had close ties with who maybe now would have walked away from Jesus and be living a different identity and a different life. And so it really is a response to a pastoral and a very personal issue. But it's also these three little verses, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, probably one of, if not the most, difficult passages in the entire Bible. And I don't say that lightly. Like seriously, one of the most, I've never, I don't ever remember hearing a message on this passage. It's just so, so difficult. It has perplexed biblical scholars and theologians down through the centuries, down through the ages. It's probably generated more books research and essays and debate than almost any other single passage of Scripture. But you'll be pleased to know this morning that that's all coming to an end because I'm going to give you the definitive word on this passage. <laughs> and put it, if you came expecting that, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. And I want to tell you at the outset that I stand before you with a lot of um, fear and trembling this morning and, and I hope a fair dose of humility. And I want, to, I want to say up front, I don't have the final word on this passage, and there will be many, maybe even many of you, who will disagree uh, with some of the conclusions that are maybe borne out, but I hope that together we can be full of grace, and the best I can do for you is, is seek to humbly interpret the Scriptures as best I can. The Scriptures are infallible, but our interpretations aren't, right? And we can get things wrong. And I'll, and I'll tell you up front, I'm not precious about this. I may be wrong, and that's okay with me. And I think with these sorts of things, even more important than, than your particular view on these issues is the way you hold that view, and the grace and the love and the humility with which we hold certain perspectives on the Scriptures and how we might treat those who hold a different view. So you've got your Bibles, you're ready to go. Hebrews 6, we're in. Uh, verse 4. Now I tell you, this is going to be a little bit more uh, teachy, maybe, than usual, because we just need to plough our way through uh, this text. But hang in there, stick with it, and uh, hopefully we'll come out and things will be a little bit clearer at the end. Hebrews 4, 4 to 6. Let's just read these three controversial verses, shall we? And let them sink in. 
It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, the first thing that we need to try and get our head around here in verse 4 and 5 there is a particular group of people that the author has in mind here. And you see in these first couple of verses, there's just a string of descriptive phrases that describe those, those who have this, and they've been that, and they've had this, and they've done that. So it's an important building block that we understand what is this group of people the author has in mind. So let's roll through these phrases. We'll take them one at a time and see what they suggest about the type of people we're dealing with here. Firstly, the author says, those who once have been enlightened. In the scriptures, this whole idea of the metaphor of light was used as a, as a metaphor not only for God, but also for salvation. It was used of people that have come into the light. And, and you may be able to, to pick some of those verses, particularly John uses this image of uh, those who are walking in the light, those who have entered the light. Paul talks about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, all these sorts of things. It is used of those who have come into fellowship with God, who are now enjoying a genuine relationship with Him. That's what it means to be enlightened, to experience the fellowship of God, not simply to understand, not simply to be aware, but to enter fully into relationship and fellowship with God. And you'll see as we go, I've tried to put some extra scripture references on the PowerPoint slides. You can look those up. We don't have time to look at every one, but that's there just to try and back up a little bit more what I'm saying in case there are questions coming through. Those who have once been enlightened, secondly, they've tasted the heavenly gift. That word gift, doria, is used in the scriptures always with the connotation of God's grace, always with the connotation of the generous outpouring of God's mercy and His grace. And the heavenly gift is most likely a reference to Jesus Christ Himself, the man from heaven, the one who came from heaven to earth. So what does it mean to taste the heavenly gift? Some people argue that the idea of tasting this gift is simply to sample it, simply to, uh, you know, like you're going to have a taste, just give me a taste of that, but not the whole thing. The problem is, if you go down that road of arguing this is just talking about those who have maybe sampled the heavenly gift without fully consuming it, just a couple of chapters later, uh, earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, the author talks of Christ having tasted death for everyone. So you end up with much bigger theological problems than you want to have, really, if you want to argue that Jesus only tasted or sampled death and just had a little bit of it, but not the whole thing. Much easier to accept, I think, that we're talking here about those who have fully consumed the heavenly gift, who have fully consumed Christ. They've ingested this wonderful gift of God's grace and they are in the kingdom of heaven as genuine believers. So they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Thirdly, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit in the New Testament is the hallmark of a believer. You look in the book of Acts and if someone has the Spirit, they are in. They are saved. They are converted. They are born again. God doesn't give a bit of His Spirit to someone and the whole of it to someone else and maybe a piece of it over here. Either you have the Spirit or you don't. And it is quite black and white in, in that sense. And so to share in the Spirit, there is no greater indication that we're talking about someone here who is a genuine follower of Christ to participate and share in the Holy Spirit that God Himself has given to live within us. These are people who have been partakers in the Spirit. Fourthly, they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And again, understand taste as referring to that full consumption having really internalized the Word of God, not just in the sense of understanding the Scriptures, not just in the sense of having read them and having comprehended them, but in the sense of really allowing the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate into our lives, 
to sink in, to internalize it, and to respond to it, and to be transformed by it. That's what it means to taste the goodness of the Word of God, to allow it to actually alter our whole existence. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ, to taste and consume the goodness of the gospel, to accept Christ and surrender our lives to Him. And they've tasted not only the goodness of the Word of God, they've tasted the power of the coming age. And here's a reference to the new creation we mentioned earlier. That new kingdom that God's bringing about on earth, the new creation that began with the rising of Jesus Christ Himself. And to taste this new creation is to be a participant in the kingdom of heaven. To be part of that new creation God's bringing about on earth. And stand in the new age now and not the old age. Even though we have an old human nature, we are participants in the new age. And ultimately that's going to culminate in the new heaven on earth when that new age is fully and finally here. It's only here now in part. One day it'll be here in full. And we'll talk more about that and what that means next week. So when you stand back from these descriptive phrases, what is the picture that starts to come through of these people? We're dealing here, I think, with people who, are, who have been, at least, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Genuinely in. Genuinely saved. We, we can't get around the issue by saying, well, these people were never really in to begin with. And this is sometimes argued. I think it's clear from these phrases here that we're dealing with people who genuinely are participants in the kingdom of heaven and have genuinely received Jesus Christ into their lives and surrendered to him. Now, the real bombshell, though, is the next five words. They've done all these things and who have fallen away. And if there are five words that have caused more controversy in the Christian church than any other, it would be these five. And who have fallen away. The, the word fallen away is the word parapipto. Para is a prefix, just means aside or beside, like paranormal, you know, other than the normal. Paramedics, aside from the medics, beside the medics, this is the idea of para. And then pipto simply means to fall. And most of the time in the Bible, it's used just literally of someone who falls, falls over, stubs their toe or something like that, just to fall. But when it is used figuratively, as it is here, it becomes a little bit uh, nuanced in its meaning. And in the New Testament, and in other classical literature around this time period, what you find is that this root verb, verb pipto is used to mean figuratively uh, passing away, falling away, perishing, something failing, something being null and void, something coming to nothing, all of those sorts of ideas, something that is, that is completely passed away. And in the New Testament, in the context of God's work on earth, what you find is when you trace this word out, it, it means its dominant meaning is in reference to those who have become separated from the grace of God. Through a loss of faith, through rejecting Christ, they've become separated from God, separated from His love, separated from His grace, no longer a part of the family of God. And so the implication is, when you get to the end of all that, that you have here a group of Christians who were at one time genuinely saved, genuinely in the kingdom of heaven, and are now genuinely unsaved, genuinely outside and separated from the grace of God. And on that basis, I would suggest to you that you have here an indication that it is possible for a genuine Christian to become a genuine non-Christian. Now, 
immediately there's a whole ton of objectives, objections that raise. You know, people immediately say, hey, you're sowing insecurity in people. How could you even suggest that this is possible? You're undermining the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You're giving people this insecurity and uncertainty as to whether you're going to be saved day to day. And often that's because the idea of falling away, even just that word falling, it kind of suggests that you could maybe lose your salvation in the same way that you lose your car keys. You know, or that you can fall away in the same way that you're going to fall into a pothole or a ditch. That somehow you're going to wake up one morning and, oh, where's my salvation? It's gone. I've lost it. It was right here. This relationship with God, you know. It's an unfortunate connotation, I guess, of falling away because it sounds passive. It sounds like, well, it's just something that may happen to you and you don't really have much control over it. And that is not at all the case. What needs to be said right up front is if it is possible for a Christian to become a non-Christian, for a Christian to lose their salvation, this cannot happen through any amount of sin or disobedience or backsliding or doubting God, questioning God, committing some heinous atrocity, anything that you can think of, it categorically cannot happen through those means. You can go out tomorrow and commit the most heinous crime imaginable, and I'm not encouraging you to, but you could, hypothetically, and you would not lose your salvation. You can backslide all you want. You are not going to lose your salvation. You can question God. You can doubt Him. You can get angry at Him, and you are not going to lose your salvation because this issue that we are dealing with here is not something that happens in the realm of ordinary Christian existence. It is, not, it is so far outside the ebb and flow of normal Christian life, the ups and downs. You are not suddenly going to hit a valley in your life, go through a hard time, turn your back on God and suddenly find one day you've woken up and you are now separated from Him. This process of a person falling away from their faith is something that happens at the most fundamental and deepest core level of a person's heart and being. It is something that happens usually after a hugely long process of already having walked away from God, already having backslidden, when a person gets to that point where they turn around to God and say, God, I don't want this salvation anymore. I reject the sacrifice of Christ. I no longer want you. I no longer trust Christ for my sins. I'm leaving it behind, and I reject his sacrifice on my behalf. It is a conscious decision. It is a willful decision. And it's not just something that happens in the heat of the moment. You might have been in a situation where you just got mad at God, something's gone wrong, and you just blow up at Him. You know those times, oh God, I don't want you anymore. Forget it, walk away. I'm done with this. That's not even what we're talking about. It's not those hot-headed decisions in the heat of the moment. This is a thought out. This is a willful, fundamentally life-altering decision in the deepest core level of your inner self where you seriously, consciously, willfully reject the sacrifice of Christ for your sins. And at that point, when a person really gets that far down the track, that they utterly turn their back on Christ and decide for themselves, as some of these Jews and Hebrews were doing, that they no longer want anything to do with Christ and they cease depending on Him to deal with them and their sin before God, then there does remain no sacrifice for sin and they find themselves outside of the kingdom of God. They find themselves in the state of having fallen away from Him. If you're worried this morning, whether you may or may not have fallen away, chances are even the fact that you're worrying about it means you haven't. 
Even the fact that you're nervous about it means that there's still an interest, there's still a spark, there's still some faith, and chances are you're, you're entirely safe. You don't need to worry about it. This is someone who really is completely separated and alienated and has chosen that path for themselves. This is the difference, you see, between a spiritual refugee and a political refugee. Spiritual refugees are where they are by their own conscious and willful decision. They are spiritually displaced people because they've turned their back on God. Now, let me say this in this whole controversy that goes on. It is a really, really serious issue of Christians walking away from God, throwing in their faith, especially if you hold to this view that it is genuinely possible for a person through that process to become separated from God's grace. But the theological technicality of whether a person technically loses their salvation or whether, as the counter-argument goes, they were never saved to begin with has been made far too much of an issue in the contemporary church. And I don't want you to think that because I'm standing here today preaching this text that this is somehow some hobby horse passage of mine or some drum that I've got to beat. It, it saddens me, frankly, and disappoints me the way in which this passage and this issue has been used to divide Christians one from another. Churches have defined themselves over this issue and what you believe about eternal security and what you believe about whether people can lose their salvation. Churches have split over it. The argument and controversy has become hostile. Christians have just loved to bicker about this for centuries. And I will tell you now that while I think the view that I've presented to you is coherent and logical, I could be wrong, and that's okay with me. And if you think differently to me on that, that's okay with me too. And far more important than what you and I might conclude about the nature of these two verses is what we do with the lost brother or sister who is actually out there right now, far from God. And I would rather that we spent less time bickering and debating about the intricacies of this text and more time on our knees praying for that lost brother or sister and going and reaching them and bringing them back. Whether you believe they've lost their salvation or not, our response practically is going to be the same, isn't it? What are we going to do? Go and reach them and bring them back. If you believe that means having to re-save them, fine. If you believe that means just restoring them to the faith they already had, fine. Let's just go and get them. Let's just go and bring them back. Those people you know, maybe you're in that boat this morning. Let's make that our priority. And I wish that people on both sides of this debate would join arms in that common pursuit. That is my heart. Far greater than it is reaching some consensus or some unanimous decision on these two verses is our heart for the lost brother and sister. And I hope that you join me in that and making that our priority. Now, ultimately, that is actually not the main question in these verses. That's just really a warm-up because the main issue that the author gets to here is whether if a person can fall away, and I think he's assuming they can, can they then be brought back again? And don't think again that we're in the world of abstract theology. I was talking to someone from this congregation a couple of weeks ago who has a friend who was a Christian and is now far from God and believes, partly on the basis of these verses, that he's blown it once for all and now has no way back, even if he wanted to come back. That it, was, that it would be impossible for him, partly because he reads these verses. And let's read it again and, and just understand what, what the implication is here. Go back to verse 4, because it's all really one big sentence. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. That's where the sentence ends. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. So it's fair to say on the surface of it, it really does sound, doesn't it, like if a person is blowing it, they're blowing it. 
I mean, that's just reading our English versions. That's exactly what it sounds like. And this has done, I think, a lot of damage in people's lives who have just taken that literal view. Now, stick with me here. Right? It's a little bit technical. The only way to understand this is just to do a little bit of grammar. Right? Cast your mind back to English seventh form grammar or whatever it was. I know you've all been there. You know what we're talking about. Now, a literal translation of what is going on here. I've put, put it up on the screen for you. You've got to remember, back in Greek, there's no sentences, there's no full stops, there's no commas and all that sort of stuff. It was just a string of words, and so translators have had to craft sentences out of this. Here's what we literally read if you just follow specifically word for word in the Greek. For it is impossible, the ones having been enlightened, and then picking it up again uh, in verse 6, isn't it? And having fallen away to renew to repentance, crucifying to themselves the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. That is how the original Greek wording works it. And the real key word in here to understand, to get a consistent interpretation, is the word crucifying. Because that word is a participle. And if you remember participles from English grammar, words like jumping, skipping, running, you know, crucifying is in that same vein. And there are different types of participles. You cannot tell from the word which type of participle it is. You have to look in the context. And I would suggest to you that the most consistent, the best fit with the context of this passage is to take that word crucifying, the word anastauru, as a time-based or a temporal participle, and therefore the translation that you would render from that word would be not just crucifying, but while crucifying, because it places it in a time-based context, while they are crucifying, as long as that action is continuing. And if you take that interpretive approach, the translation you end up with is this, and having fallen away again to renew to repentance while crucifying to themselves the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Can you see how that changes the flavor of the passage? Can you see how that shifts it now from dealing with an absolute prohibition against people coming back to now a conditional prohibition? If you say they cannot come back because they are crucifying to themselves the Son of God, you're making an outright blanket statement that it's impossible for people to be restored to faith. If you take this translative approach and say, while they are crucifying the Son of God, the implication is, if they cease crucifying to themselves the Son of God, they can be brought back, because this prohibition lasts only as long as their actions do. Does that make sense? Some glazed eyes and faces there, but this is, this is basically, I think, it, I'm not just playing acrobatics with the text here. This is taking that participle and finding the best way to translate it. That may not look exactly like what your English versions look like. It doesn't look like the way the T and IVs translated it at all, but I'd argue that that is a consistent interpretation from the Greek text. And so what you end up with is the author saying this, it is impossible for these people who have fallen away to be restored to repentance while they are crucifying to themselves the Son of God. As long as that's happening, it's impossible. Now, what does that mean for them to crucify to themselves the Son of God and hold Him up to public contempt and all this sort of stuff? Think again about the situation of these, of these Jewish readers. To fall away for them did not simply mean what it might mean for Christians today, and that is just to throw in faith and religion altogether and become a complete atheist or just a secular thinker. For them, it would have meant a retreat back to the confines of Judaism, a retreat back to the old covenant way the old covenant. And whenever you talk in, in Hebrews about falling away and continuing in sin and all this sort of stuff, the implication is it's back to the law as a means of righteousness. It's back to the temple as a means of worship. It's back to the sacrificial system as a means of atonement. Those are the sorts of movements that a Jew would make if they were going to abandon their faith in Christ. They'd still remain entirely religious, but their religion would be based no longer 
on the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but going back to the sacrificial system of Judaism. Can you see the way in which that cuts right across what Christ has done on our behalf? If you and I were to go back and start sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats to atone for our sin, we are undermining the very essence of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And metaphorically, what the author is saying is that you are reintroducing the very reason Jesus had to go to the cross in the first place. It's like you're crucifying him all over again. You're going back to the blood of bulls and goats. You're going back to the sacrificial system. It's like you're wanting Jesus to be crucified again. It's like you're going back to the very thing that he died to abolish, the very reason he came, the very thing he came to do away with, the, these animal sacrifices. How could you return to that? And it is absolutely impossible while a person is dealing with animal sacrifices to take away their sin for them to be restored to faith in Christ. That's just a logical implication. Why? Because these things are mutually exclusive. You cannot trust the finality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for your sin while you are simultaneously trusting the blood of bulls and goats to deal with sin as well. And so as long as that's happening, as long as you've retreated and returned to dealing with temple sacrifices for your standing before God, it's impossible for you to come back to Christ. Now, what's the implication of that? If you give up that practice again, the door is wide open. If you would just acknowledge that, as the author of Hebrews says in a couple of chapters' time, the blood of bulls and goats can never, ever, ever deal with our sin before God. If you'd recognize that again, as you once did when you first came to Christ, if you'd give up that and come back to repentance, of course it's possible for you to be restored. The door is wide open. The Father's arms are wide open. The only prohibition here is that you cannot be restored while you're continuing to reject Christ and rely on something else to deal with your sin. And so it is with us today. Now, this is not a trap many modern Christians are going to fall into. Probably the people that you know who have given up their faith in Christ haven't gone back to the slaughterhouse and started slaughtering bulls and goats. But the principle is the same. What they are doing is rejecting Jesus Christ. What they are doing is saying, I no longer trust him to deal with my sin before God. And as long as that is the case, as long as that's the posture of their heart, it is true. You, we, we can't bring them back to repentance because their repentance has to be an acknowledgement that there is nothing else that can deal with my sin. There is nothing else that can give me peace. There is nothing else that can bring me eternal life and gain me standing in favor with God than the finished sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's simply that acknowledgement. And it is true that a person must make that acknowledgement if they're to come back to faith. If they fail to do it, they remain outside the grace of God because Christ is so central to what we believe. You can't come back and yet sort of, well, I'm not sure about the cross. I'm not sure about the sacrifice of Christ. I'm not sure about him taking away my sin. Now, if you're still in that place, then okay, there's still more work to be done. But friends, if you or those you know would open your arms again to Jesus Christ, then the attitude of God towards you is that of the father in the story of the prodigal son. And when the son returned home, what did the father do? He didn't stand there with a scorecard. He didn't stand there with a baseball bat ready to club his son. He stood there with open arms. In fact, he didn't stand there at all. He ran which dignified people in that area would never do. But he ran and embraced his son, threw his arms around him, hugged him, kissed him. That is the attitude of God towards the lost children that he has in the world right now. Don't let these verses give you the impression that God closes the door and is never willing to reopen it if someone falls away. 
And maybe you're in that boat this morning. Maybe. I don't want to overlook the fact that you might be in that place right now and you've fallen far from God. And as you sit here this morning, you're isolated from Him. You're outside of the community of faith. You don't have any sort of spiritual home at all. And you need to know, friends, that God is willing and able and waiting to welcome you back. He stands here, as it were, this morning with open arms, just waiting for you to return home, looking watchfully and anticipating the return of his lost son, of his lost daughter. And if you would just come to your senses, just as that prodigal son did, and just realize the, the bankruptcy of life apart from God, doesn't matter how far you've drifted, doesn't matter how bad it's been, doesn't matter what you've done, who you've been to this point, if you would just come back to him and fall again at the foot of the cross, God is so willing to welcome you home. And he'll do it. He'll do it in a heartbeat. It's quite a personal issue, this one, I guess, for me, because um, my grandpa falls into this category. He was a member for most of his life of, of a church, really active member of his congregation, and very active in the denomination that he was a part of at a higher level. And then through a series of family circumstances, he ended up leaving the church that he was at and became uh, separated from, from that community and presumably from God. And he ended up finding solace and peace and welcoming arms in the Mormon church. And he lived out his days associated with that faith and that movement. And so the question for me, I guess, is am I going to see my grandpa in heaven? And I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, largely because I don't know his heart. I, I, don't, I don't know where his heart was at with God when he passed away. And it's not for me to know. I have to leave that with God. But it reminds me that in the present, there is still time. There is still time with those we know who have fallen away from their faith and are isolated from God this morning. There's still time to reach them. And it's not for us to judge their hearts. It's not for us to know ultimately whether they truly have thrown in the towel or whether they're just close, whether they're slipping, sliding, whatever. Because it doesn't matter. The last verse in the book of James says, if one of you wanders from the truth and someone else goes and restores him, you will save him from death and you will cover over a multitude of sins. And I think that is our modus operandi as a church. That's the mission and that's where this needs to end with a powerful and united commitment from all of us that we will go and we will not sit back for the sake of theological nitpicking and ignore the mission that God has given us of restoring those who may have walked away from him this morning. And beyond all the arguments and the debates and the controversies that we've worked our way through this morning, I hope that's where we've ended up, with a heart for those who once had a passion for God and now don't. A heart to say, let's go get them. Let's go bring them back. Not that we can do that all ourselves, but we can pray and we can persuade and we can love and we can gently draw them back as best we can. Let's make that our mission. And let's allow that to be the application that flows for us out of this text. Would you pray with me?